We did really have a, a, a great time at this pastor's conference. And I think the topic and really what was shared at this conference really um, was appropriate for us being in, in 2 Timothy today. And if you'll turn there in your Bibles, we're going to start this new book this morning, 2 Timothy. It made me think, uh, even at this conference, about what is it that's really within a man or a woman? What kind of a man or a woman gives her all the way we see in the Apostle Paul and the way that we see in so many of the apostles that the Lord had sent out into this world. And they gave their whole life up. You know, you read about Paul and, and just the hardships and the tribulation and the persecutions that this man endured for the Gospel. He was sold out. He was all in. And he, and he really left a, a witness and a testimony to all of us. It's that same spirit it's that, that, that drove the Apostle Paul that lives and dwells in us. And we can be those people that are sold out for Christ. They're committed to the furtherance of the Gospel. It's what we're really called to do. We're not just called to exist here as Christians and just go to work. We're called to be active for the Lord and for His kingdom and for His glory. And so let's open in prayer. Father, I lift up this morning. I pray, Lord, as we start into this second letter to Timothy, Lord, that You would speak truth into our hearts. Lord, that we would be changed by Your Word. Lord, that Your Holy Spirit would unveil our eyes in areas of our own personal commitment, our own personal walk with You. Lord, that we would be challenged in our walks with You, our relationship with You. Father, I pray that You'd pour out Your Spirit upon Your church this morning. And we thank You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen. I titled this morning's message, really, it's just the introduction to 2 Timothy. This is one of three letters that the Apostle Paul wrote that are referred to as the pastoral epistles. That's 1 and 2 Timothy and also the book of Titus. We might say that this second letter to Timothy is Paul's last will and testament. It's a letter that was written at the time that Paul was once again in a Roman prison. It was Paul's last letter that he wrote. And he wrote it to a man that he was connected with. I started thinking about what is it in this relationship with Paul and Timothy? You know, and I, I started thinking about ministry. And really that relationship between Paul and Timothy, it was really, it was forged in ministry. It was a life of ministering together through thick and thin, through hardship, 
all for the furtherance of the gospel. And really for us as Christians, maybe some of the best relationships that we have are with brothers and sisters in ministry. When we serve together, when we labor together, and even at times when we suffer together, there's this bonding that happens in that relationship of ministry. We might say that these words of Paul in this letter are his last words from his deathbed. There's an element of sadness in this letter, but there's also an element of victory, ultimate victory that Paul knew was coming to himself. We read in verse 12, you can look in chapter 1, Paul says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Paul, though he, was, though he suffered much, though he labored much for the Gospel's sake, he said it's something that I will never be ashamed of. And on that day, he was committed to taking his walk all the way to the end. Running that race to the end. I hope that we're all in the race in that way. That we're not going to be someone that's going to get off the course and get off onto the sidelines and lose sight of why we're here and where we're going. Remember Paul in this last imprisonment, he was going to be beheaded by Nero. He was just waiting for that executioner to lay his head, so to speak, on that chopping block. But he knew that he was able to keep what was committed to him until that day. He trusted in his Savior. He trusted in his Lord. We can also, through every trial and difficulty of life, we can put our faith and trust in him. He's the one that holds us. But out of all of Paul's letters, I would say that 2 Timothy might be one of his most personal letters. He chose to write this letter out of all of the companions and co-workers that Paul had through ministry to write this letter to his son in the faith, Timothy. That's the kind of laboring and, and working relationship that Paul had with Timothy. This was something like 16 to 17 years of ministry together. In verse 2, Paul calls Timothy a beloved son. In chapter 2, in verse 1, he says, my son or my child. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, He refers to Timothy as a true son in the faith. And in 1 Timothy 6.11, he calls Timothy a man of God. Paul, in his relationship with Timothy, was one that there was no one as like-minded as Timothy to Paul. They were knit together in ministry. When a person comes to that time of death in life, 
Those are the times, if you've had opportunity to ever be at someone's bedside, whether that was a relative, a friend, but when that time of certain death comes, and that person maybe is able to speak, and maybe to give some last words that he might say, those are the times that I think quite often we have open ears. Tell me something that would benefit me in life. Leave me with something that you learned in all of your years. This letter of 2 Timothy might have been one of those types of letters. That last will and testament, so to speak, of Paul. Timothy here is the recipient of that letter. To hear from his beloved co-worker, Paul. To hear words from him that might encourage him and lift him up and, and cause him to keep running the race. Paul, on this second imprisonment that he found himself in, he was no longer under house arrest like his first Roman imprisonment. Remember, that one was a little bit easier for Paul, though he was still chained to a Roman guard. He was under house arrest. He had some freedoms in that first imprisonment. But in this second imprisonment, Paul was in a place that was likely wet and cold. It was a dungeon. It was in the inner prison there where Paul was thrown into. It was a dark and lonely place for Paul at this point in his ministry. He's finishing his life in probably the worst of conditions. And he was just simply waiting there for the day of his execution. What we see in this letter, which is quite amazing to me, is that Paul was more concerned for Timothy in the proclamation of the Gospel than he was for even his own life. He was in that prison knowing that his execution was coming, but he was more concerned for the furtherance of the gospel and that Timothy would continue that race than he was even for his own life. Paul in this letter was going to leave this earth with a good testimony. What kind of testimony will you leave on your day? If the Lord doesn't return before you die, praise the Lord. But if you come to that day on your deathbed, what kind of legacy are you going to leave behind? Paul left with a good testimony. In chapter 4, you can turn there in verse 6. Paul wrote this, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. That promise goes to you and I. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I finished my race. I have kept the faith. What a great testimony. 
And will that be our testimony? Will we be able to utter those words in a letter to people, fellow workers, family members, that I've run my course and I've finished my race. I haven't departed from the faith. What a testimony that Paul left for us to even read. There's probably nobody in all of Scripture that probably suffered more for ministry and for the cause of Christ than the Apostle Paul. But it tells me something of what God is able to do in a man or a woman. He can can cause us to be sold out for Christ in every area of our life. Last Sunday, I shared about revival in our hearts. The importance of being revived. Lord, would You revive me? Many of you came forward for that fresh start with Christ. If we look at these four chapters in this letter, in this first chapter, Paul is going to remind Timothy, but he's also of some things, but he's also going to give him some encouragements. We need reminders. We need encouragements as ministry goes on day after day in life. As we just minister to family, as we minister in our homes, as we minister at church, we need these encouragements. In chapter 2, Paul is going to speak to Timothy about faithful men, about soldiers of Jesus Christ. He's going to speak and give this picture of an athlete who is competing. He's going to talk about a hard-working farmer. These are all pictures of somebody that is sold out for Christ. In chapter 3, Paul is going to give a warning to Timothy that difficult times will come. Difficult times are on the horizon, Timothy. You need to be aware that these times will come. We need to know that as Christians. It's not always an easy walk, is it? Life is not always easy. But when we have our perspective right, when our eyes are set on the finish line, we seem to go through these things of life so much better. Chapter 4 is going to be Paul's final exhortations to Timothy. He's going to sum up some things that Timothy needed to hear, that he needed to be reminded of, that he needed to be encouraged and exhorted in. As a matter of fact, in this letter, Paul mentions 25 people by name. 25 different men and women that are in these Scriptures Some of them had good testimonies, and some of them did not. Some of them started out well, but didn't finish well. The purpose of this letter, I believe, was to inspire, but to also challenge Timothy. To to challenge him to continue. Timothy, uh, he experienced those hardships day in and day out. Just like you and I do at times, we have these difficult times, but when it's for the Gospel's sake, it's so much easier at times to turn away from our calling, to turn away from what God has called us to do. We might press on in the trials and tribulations of life, but when it comes to ministry, we could say, you know what, that's too much. That's too hard. I, not, you know, I can't do that. 
Timothy needed that encouragement and that challenge from Paul. He also needed to know that he wasn't to neglect the gift that was put within him by the Holy Spirit. He needed to guard the Gospel. He needed to remind Timothy that suffering was going to follow the Gospel. Timothy, if you continue and you keep running this race for the furtherance of the Gospel, suffering will come. And he also needed to continue in the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. Some of the key verses that help us understand this letter might be chapter 1, verse 6. Look what it says. Therefore I remind you, Timothy, to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore, my son, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In verse 3 of chapter 2, you, speaking to Timothy, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In verse 15 of chapter 2, be diligent, Timothy, to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In chapter 3, verse 14, But you, Timothy, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from a childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul exhorts Timothy, Timothy, preach the Word. Continue to preach the Word, Timothy. Don't shrink back from it. Don't turn away. Don't shy away from preaching the whole counsel of God's Word. Timothy, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season, Timothy. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. You see, to stay faithful to preaching the Gospel, to stay faithful to preaching the Word of God has caused some men to shrink back. They've turned away from the preaching of the Word of God. Paul is telling Timothy here, Timothy, remain faithful to preaching the Word of God. It's what the people need. It's what they need to hear. It's what they'll grow by. It's what will encourage them and exhort them and cause their their lives to change. The preaching of God's Word. That's why I'm committed to doing what I do here. I believe that it's all I can give you that'll be lasting anyway is the teaching and the preaching of God's Word. Paul's ministry as a Christian lasted for 30 years. He was saved in around 37 A.D. and he was martyred in 67 to 68 AD. 30 years of ministry. In AD 58, after Paul finished his third missionary journey, we're told that he was arrested in Jerusalem. Paul would then appeal to the governor Festus at the time. He would appeal to Caesar. And it would take almost three years from that time for Paul 
to be escorted to Rome, where he would spend his first time in that Roman prison. In AD 61 is when Paul was escorted by this Roman centurion. And it was during this time that Paul was in prison there in Rome that he wrote four letters during this time. Think of that. Four letters that we have in our New Testament were while Paul was incarcerated in prison for his faith. He wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon while he was in prison. They're called the prison epistles by some. Paul prayed and he asked the church during this imprisonment that they would pray for his release. And you know what? It ended up being God's will because Paul was released from that prison. In AD 63, Paul was released. And we're not told in detail, but we can glean from some passages in Scripture that he covered a great territory during this time. He traveled to various areas there in Macedonia. And he eventually made his way to Spain. He would write 1 Timothy, that first letter to Timothy, and also the letter to Titus during this time of his release. Three years would pass between Paul's first letter to Timothy and his second letter to Timothy. By A.D. 66, Paul was arrested again for the sake of the Gospel. He was taken back to Rome where he would write this final letter that we're reading this morning to Timothy. But this imprisonment, as I already shared, was different. This was going to be a testing in Paul's life once again as they threw him down into that dungeon. And as he knew inside, maybe he was hoping for his release again, but it appears that he knew inside that his day was coming to an end. His time of departure was at hand. We closed out 1 Timothy two weeks ago in chapter 6, verse 20, where Paul said, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and the idle babblings and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing that some have strayed concerning the faith And he finishes with this, Grace be with you, Timothy. Amen. Closing words are often real important. He's telling Timothy, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Do you know that you have the responsibility of that? To guard the Gospel? To guard the truths of God's Word? To to guard when people come in and they bring in a false Gospel? that you need to defend the Gospel. You need to guard it. These are the truths that God has entrusted to you and I. We start this morning in chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul gives this introduction like he normally does when he starts a letter to Timothy. Look at your Bibles at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, 
and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul often started out his letter stating who he was in Christ. He was an apostle. But what's the difference between an apostle and a disciple? A disciple is a learner. It's a learner who is intent on following the one he has learned from. That's a disciple. But an apostle is one who is sent out on a mission. Somebody that is sent forth with a particular mission by God. Paul himself was an apostle. And I believe that the apostles, that, uh, the disciples that were once disciples, they became apostles. Jesus made them apostles when he gave them the great commission and told them to go out into all the world and to preach the gospel. We read in Luke's gospel, chapter 6, verse 13, that Jesus called his disciples to himself and from them he chose 12 of them whom he also named apostles, ones who were sent on a special mission. The actual word apostle, it actually, in the Greek, it's a word that speaks of like a ship being dispatched from a harbor with a special shipment going forth. It's like an ambassador that goes out to represent the country before a king of another nation. It's a person that goes out with the authority of God as an apostle. That's what Paul was. Paul's apostleship came from Jesus Christ Himself. He says that it was by the will of God that I'm an apostle. And I don't believe that there's modern day apostles, by the way. There are churches that say they believe this apostleship gets passed down. I don't believe that there's modern day apostles in the sense of what we would know the early church to have. Those apostles that were the foundations of the church are founded upon. But we do have still the gift of apostle. We read about it in Ephesians. Those that have been sent out, we might call them missionaries. Those that go out with a specific mission and calling and purpose by God. In Romans 1.5, Paul wrote that it was through Jesus Christ that we have received grace and apostleship. He says, for the obedience to the faith. And he says, among all nations for his name. That's the work of an apostle. Paul says in verse 1, that it was according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul was called an apostle. He was called to accomplish a task. He was fulfilling the promise of life in doing that. He was fulfilling the promise of life, which is really the good news of the gospel. It's taking the gospel to this world. When Saul, who became Paul by name later, when Saul was saved on that road to Damascus, we read in Acts 9.15, but the Lord said to one of his disciples, that man was Ananias, he says, go for Saul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. That was Paul's mission. 
God gave Paul the specific mission to go and take the gospel to the Gentile nations. He also gave a specific mission to Peter to take the gospel to his fellow Jew, the, the nation of Israel. The wording here, though, I think is interesting in verse 1. Because Paul knew as he was writing this letter of 2 Timothy that he was facing the executioner. He knew that his death was at hand. And just think of how precious these words would have been as Paul was writing them down. The promise of life. As he, as he, as he knew that his time was the promise of life. As he wrote that out to Timothy in this letter. I'm sure that in his mind, that was his hope. The promise of life. It's that good news of Jesus Christ. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Paul knew that. Paul used these same words back in his first letter in chapter 4, verse 8. He says, For bodily exercise profits a little. Remember when we read that? But godliness is profitable for all things. Having a promise of the life that, is, that now is and of that which is to come. The life that now is. You see, we need to be careful, church. Because some of us are exerting a lot more effort in life towards bodily exercise. Towards wanting to take care of this physical body. Which is important, not that we shouldn't. Paul doesn't say that there's no profit to it. He just says it profits a little. But we put a lot less effort into exercising godliness. You see, we can put a lot of time into this. And there's no promise, there's no guarantee of what the result's going to be. But there is a guarantee with the promise of life. There is a guarantee with godliness of what the outcome will be from that. The word of life here that Paul speaks of is speaking of living on the highest plane. It's, it's if we could say, a life that is worthwhile. It, and, it, and I'm going to say that that is only found in a Christian who is exercising godliness, living for Christ, desiring to follow after the Lord. Wanting to live on that highest plane. Wanting to live a life that is fruitful and worthwhile. It's only found in Christ. We chase after a lot of things in life that are not fulfilling. But that abundant life, that word of life, that life that, you know, that's what Paul was living for. And if you want to have and you want to experience this supernatural, we'll call it, abundant life. If you want to know the joy of the Lord, even in persecution, trials, tribulations, if you want to have the peace and contentment that we are often looking for, then we need to live according to the promise of life. We need to find it in Christ. We need to follow after Christ. Follow after godliness. 
Stop spending your energies on things that are worthless. The things that have no promise to them. He also writes in this intro, like he did in 1 Timothy, this greeting says, grace, mercy, and peace. He groups all three of them together in this letter, like he did in the first letter. And I think he's saying it to Timothy. Timothy, quite often he just said grace and peace. And this one, he adds mercy in there. He says, Timothy, you, you, you need to understand, you need to grab hold of this mercy. You'll need it, Timothy, in ministry. Paul knew that Timothy needed all three. We need all three. His mercies are new every day, aren't they? We just need to grab hold of it. We need to acknowledge it. We need to know it when we see our failures and when we see our slips. God, Your mercies are new every day towards me. Thank You, Lord, for Your mercy. Thank You for Your grace in my life. You see, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. You see, grace releases us from guilt, doesn't it? When we understand and we grab hold and we're growing in the grace of the Lord, it releases us from guilt. Have you ever found yourself overwhelmed with guilt? Maybe you're not grabbing hold of grace. Maybe you're not grabbing hold of mercy. It's been said when grace and mercy are realized in the soul, Peace is sure to abound. Peace is sure to come. When you grab hold of grace and mercy in your personal walk, day in and day out, you will experience the peace of God in your life. But if you don't grab hold of those, you will be uneasy. Life won't be full of peace. Grace and mercy... And peace, those three things that we all need as Christians. We can't survive without it. We can't do ministry without it. We can't do anything apart from God's grace and mercy and the peace that we quite often need. Peace is needed for the restless soul, I read. It's the assurance that whatever happens to me will work out for God's glory. Is that the way your mind thinks? Your restless soul at times? That this assurance that you have inside that God's going to work it all out. It's what gives me peace in the midst of a storm. I also read... The God of all grace is the God of peace. And it is only by and after His grace that we can enjoy this peace. We need to know it. We need to grow in it. It's why Paul started every one of his letters with it. And he ended all of his letters with it. That we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These divine graces come from God who is the Father of all that know Him. 
If He's your Father, then you're His Son. You're His child. And these graces come from God to you. He's our Father. He's also our Lord. He's our Master. He's our owner, our ruler. And He's the one that disposes these things to you and I. I mean, that should cause us to say, Amen. Paul first, in verse 3, offers up a thanks to God. Even as he's sitting in this Roman dungeon, he's got thankfulness that's coming out of his, his heart. And in his mind, he's got this thankfulness towards God. He says in verse 3, I thank God. Could you? When you're in your darkest times and trials and tribulations, is thankfulness just rolling off your lips? Is it real easy just to thank the Lord in the middle of it all? It should be. That we can thank God when things are not well and not going well, but thank Him when things are well, when things are going good. You see, it's characteristic of a child of God to be thankful. It's actually an attitude of gratitude towards God. Thankfulness should be the habitual practice of every Christian. When is the last time that you thank the Lord in your tribulation? When is the last time you thank the Lord for anything? Paul says in Romans 1.21, something that's characteristic of an unbeliever. It says they do not glorify God, nor are they thankful. You see, somebody that doesn't know Christ, they might be thankful for some things in life. But it's not the kind of thankfulness that we can have even in the midst of trials and tribulations and hardships. Paul says, I thank God even as I'm here in this Roman dungeon. As a child of God, when we become unthankful and we lose that attitude of gratitude, I think that we're not far from losing our joy when we become unthankful, joy seems to fade away. Paul also says, whom I serve with a pure or a clear conscience. He did it as my forefathers did. He's looking back on his forefathers and saying, I serve the Lord with a pure conscience. In other words, my serving God comes from a a clear conscience. What I'm doing and why I do it is not from untruthfulness of heart. I'm not exaggerating what I'm saying here in these words. These are truthful words. This is coming from my heart. I'm not being phony before you. He also wanted Timothy to know in verse 3 that without ceasing, Timothy, I remember you. I remember you in my prayers night and day, Timothy. 
Wouldn't you love to have somebody that was at their post night and day? Their prayer post. Just praying for you night and day. Wouldn't that be wonderful? To just know you just had somebody there all the time, night and day, just lifting you up. That was their calling in life. We'd go, wow, please continue. I say pray for me all the time. I pray for you. We need to pray for one another. When God puts somebody on your heart, it doesn't matter if you're driving the car, you're at work, wherever you're at, lift them up in prayer, even if you don't know what to pray for. The Holy Spirit knows. He'll intercede on your behalf. Lift them up in prayer. God bless them, protect them, have your hand upon them. God, use me in prayer for one another. Paul quite often says that he prayed without ceasing for churches, for people. He's listing people in this letter. 25 names that are here. He's praying continually. God help us that we'd be people of prayer, that we would know that our prayers are holding people up. Every time Paul prayed, I believe that he was brought to remembrance of his son in the faith, Timothy. It's just one person, this person was on his mind night and day. He knew that Timothy needed much prayer. He knew that he was in the thick of it, that he was in the battle, that he was in the battle for the furtherance of the gospel, and it needs my prayers. I'm locked up in this dungeon. Timothy, you're out there in the field. You're laboring for the God. You need prayer. You're preaching the Word, Timothy, and there are people that will oppose it. You need prayer, Timothy. Paul was convinced that prayer was the driving force behind his own ministry and also the ministry of Timothy. Paul goes on in verse 4. He says, greatly desiring to see you. Paul, he, he wanted to see Timothy's face again. And he says, being mindful of your tears. It doesn't even tell us the occasion where Paul saw Timothy cracking some tears. Maybe as Paul was being arrested. Maybe as he was being persecuted. He remembered those times that he saw the tears in the eyes of his son in the faith, Timothy as maybe they hauled Paul away, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, in your mother Eunice, and, and I'm persuaded also that it's in you, Timothy, this genuine faith. What a heritage. You know, the grandmother, the mother, Timothy being raised in a Christian home, Paul then being instrumental in leading Timothy to Christ. But what a heritage. Passing it down from generation to generation. This genuine faith that Paul saw in his son in the faith, Timothy. And what he saw in Lois and Eunice. Very personal, isn't it? That I may be filled with joy, he says, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith 
that is in you, Timothy. That word genuine in the King James Version is translated unfeigned faith. Or faith that is without hypocrisy. It's opposite of genuine faith. And, and Paul says, I see that in you. How do we see that in believers? How do we see a genuine faith in them? I think it comes out in very practical ways. I think it's something that we could observe as they minister and they labor. But there were those that Paul had to write about in Titus 1.16. He said there are those that profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. There was no fruit. There was no real work that proved the genuine faith that was in them. Paul also in this first chapter wants to remind Timothy of the gift that had been put inside him by the Holy Spirit. How many of you know your gift? Or you know your giftings? How many of you know what God has placed inside of you? And how many of you need to have a, a new stirring in your heart with that gift? Paul here in verse 6, he reminds Timothy about the time that he laid hands on Timothy. And Timothy received this gift in his life. He says in verse 6, Therefore I remind you, Timothy, to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. We all have been given a gift, whether you know it or not. You see, the only responsibility you have as a Christian is to find out what that gift is. Pray. Ask God. Say, God, what is my gift? What are my gifts? How can I use it to Your glory? How can I use it in the body of Christ? Some of us know our gift. Some of us have been discouraged in ministry. Some of us have been discouraged to the point that we backed away from using our gift. You see, that inner fire can go out, can it? We used to be zealous to want to use what God had given to us. And that gift needs to be rekindled. It needs, to, it needs to be stoked up again, that flame in our hearts. Verse 6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of My hands, Timothy. The New Living Translation reads this way, This is why I remind you to fan the flames the spiritual gift of God gave you when I laid My hands on you, Timothy. To stir up just simply means to kindle afresh. It means keep it in full flame. It means to stir up the fire. It means to cause something to begin again. And if you can think of a time that you are actively using your gift within the body of Christ, and you got discouraged, or you moved away, and you need a fanning again. You need to fan the flame of your heart. 
Because God wants to use you. He doesn't want you to neglect the gift that He has placed in you. Remember that a fire that is left to itself will eventually burn out. You see, you can't just say, I have a gift and not use it. And if you don't exercise it and use it, it's eventually going to just seem like, "Eh, you know, I haven't used that gift in a long time. I haven't used that gift of encouragement in the body of Christ. I used to be this person that was encouraging everybody. Going around, I was just this, you know, like Barnabas, the son of encouragement. It's just I used to do that quite often, and I don't do it anymore. It can be as simple as that. Some of you might need that rekindling of your gift this morning. Look at verse 7. Paul goes on and he tells Timothy, you need to be bold in your gift, Timothy. He says in verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The gift that God had given to you, Timothy. That gift. Don't let fear keep you from using your gift, Timothy. Don't let those who are opposing the Gospel and those that are coming up against what you're preaching and teaching, don't let fear keep you back from using that gift the way God intended it to be used. James Vernon McGee says this spirit of fear is better translated cowardice. To be a coward. You see, fear in itself is not wrong. God gave us that capacity to fear. You see, fear quite often keeps us out of bad situations, dangerous situations. The fear in itself is not the problem. It's when we, in a sense, with our giftings, become a coward. It's when God says, I want to use you, but inside you feel this fear that keeps you from using your gift. That's what I believe that Paul is exhorting Timothy here. Remember, Timothy was ministering at Ephesus, a very difficult city, full of idolatry, full of immorality, full of things that would distract him and pull away from what God had called him to do. It's why Paul told Timothy, Timothy, continue to preach the Word. Don't give up. Some of us maybe have experienced that cowardice, that fear, when it comes to witnessing. If I all said to all of us, right, let's just get out of here right now. Let's go out into the streets and go witnessing. Well, that's not me. That's not my gift. That's not me. Maybe it is your gift. And maybe you're not doing it. How about prayer? We had a ladies' prayer meeting here on Friday night. We doubled how many people came. We went from 5 to 12. Praise the Lord. But there could be more. For many times, we... Don't involve ourselves in those things. Why? Fear. God's called us. We know it's His will, but, oh, you know, to pray with people, 
to go out and witness to people. I mean, those fears keep us. They hold us back. How about even going up to a retreat? <laughs> oh yeah, I don't like getting into it, you know. I don't, you know, I don't like that whole setting. There's so many things. When you think of ministry, when you think of using your gift in the body of Christ, if I said, hey, why don't we have one of you go down and teach the children downstairs and you've never done it before? You go, what? I can't teach kids. I can't even teach. If God gives you the ability, the gift to do it, and you're not doing it, then maybe you're holding back in fear. Holding back from God using you by His power in you. He says, but God has given you the spirit of power, church. And that power, I believe, comes from the Holy Spirit. It lives and dwells inside of each one of us that is born again. That dunamis power. That power from above that enables you, gives you the gifts and enables you to use them in a very powerful way. And quite often we're fearful of it and so we don't use it. You see, power is in contrast to the spirit of fear. In Acts 1.8, on that day of Pentecost when Peter stood up, we read of those Christians, those 120 in that upper room. He says, but you shall receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Peter, on that day, he stood up, didn't he? Do you think it was intimidating to him as this whole multitude of people were standing before him? And it says in him standing to his feet, and he was full of the Holy Spirit, God spoke through him, he preached the gospel, 3,000 plus people were saved on that day. He could have allowed fear to hold him back. I'm not standing in front of all those people. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to share my... I'm not going to do this. And look what God did when Peter trusted in the gifting that God had given to him. He stood up. But the spirit of power is what God has given to us. In Luke 24, 49, we read, Behold, Jesus says, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endured, endued or clothed with power from on high. If you need that power in your life today, this morning, you need to pray. It's as simple as saying, God, I need your power. I need the manifestation of your power in my life by your Holy Spirit so that I can live for you, witness for you, do my gifts unto you. I need your power. I can't do it in my own strength. It won't be effective. God, remove the fears from me that hold me back from stepping out in faith and being used of you. God doesn't want to just use a little handful. He wants to use us all. Hudson Taylor, he affirmed this axiom for every Christian worker. This is what he said. 
Depend on it. He's talking about this power, this power of the Spirit. Depend on it, upon it. God's work done in God's way will never lack supplies. All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on His being with them. God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on Him. Paul, when he came to the Corinthian church, he says, in weakness and in fear, I came to you declaring to you the Gospel of God. And you think, well, Paul, was he afraid? Well, he was there. He did it. But he came in meekness and he came in fear and trembling. I mean, this was a big deal. But you see, he didn't allow those fears to hold him back from what God's will was for his life. That's what we need to make sure that our fears, our cowardice, does not hold us back. Dwight Edwards wrote this, the ministry is too hard for any of us to handle by ourselves, for we are utterly inadequate. But the same power which raised Christ from the dead is also available to us so that we can say with Paul, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. That's what we rest in. That's what I have to rest in when I stand up here. My sufficiency is in Christ, not in myself. He says also of love and of love. That's agape, unconditional, sacrificial love. The love that God has for you. The love that God has placed in you. The love that God wants you to have towards mankind. Love towards God. Love towards mankind. That's a work of God. It's a supernatural work of God in the life of a believer. That I don't need to be in love, but in power and in love. You see, love is essential to the ministry of your gift. It's essential for you to operate in the love of Christ when God is using you and using your gift. It's our love for God. And this is important to note. It's our love for God. It's our unconditional love for Him that often is what removes the fear and the cowardice within us to say, you know what? I'm fearful about this. I'm, <laughs> I don't see anything in myself that's able to do this. But God, I know that You want me to do it. And I'm going to step out and I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm going to glorify You in my weakness and in my fear and in my trembling. I'm going to trust that You're going to give me the words to speak in the moment that I need them. You're going to give me the resources that I need to do what You've called me to do. That's the love relationship that you have with God. That's the love relationship that He wants you to have towards others as you minister your gift. And lastly, He says, and of a sound mind, a disciplined mind. One commentator wrote, the sound mind all alone can become merely academic or speculative power, love, 
and a sound mind give to us by God Himself is the antidote to the spirit of fear and timidity. It's we need these resources from God to do our ministry. It's not something that is in you to do apart from Him. Maybe this morning, if you're here and you're not utilizing your gifts, you're not actively engaged, maybe this will be a time for you to reassess what part you have in God's work and God's kingdom. And, and maybe it just needs to be looked at in light. Maybe it's my fear that holds me back. Maybe it's not trusting in the resources that God has made available to me. But if you will go before the Lord and say, God, would you show me my gift and would you forgive me for not using it, that I might glorify you, that I wouldn't hold back from what your will is for my life, then I would exhort you to step out in faith. Find out where you can serve. There's lots of places to serve in this church. God will use you. Next week, Timothy is going to be exhorted by Paul not to be ashamed of the gospel. Verse 8 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, Timothy, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Isn't that incredible? You see, Timothy as well as Paul, Paul often asked for prayer. He says, pray for me that utterance might be made from my mouth, that I, that I wouldn't hold back, that I wouldn't shrink back from preaching the gospel, the whole gospel, with clarity, with truth, that I wouldn't be ashamed of that message. Read ahead in your Bibles. We'll finish uh, chapter 1 next week. And so let's have the uh, worship team come up. If you're in need of prayer today, you'd like to pray, come up and let's pray together. Uh, we'll have somebody up here to pray with you. Uh, don't leave. I keep saying that every week. Don't leave this place if you have needs in your life that need prayer. Don't let your fear or your pride keep you back. Come up for prayer. We're the body of Christ. No fear in that. I mean, it's like, hey, it's me this week. It'll be you next week. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Just come up and receive what God has for you. And you know what? And then you'll walk away going, oh, man, thank you, Lord, that I was obedient to your Holy Spirit, that I listened to you. And you'll go away blessed. You'll, go, you'll feel lighter walking out of here. But when you don't, you can't. I can't do that. You're the one that pays the price. God wants to bless you. He wants to bless each one of us. And He will do that. Just yield. Yield to Him. So let's all stand.